David Nywert believes that the so-called alt-right of right-wing populists in America has been born of a toxic mix of factors. Mainstream conservatives unifying with the racist far-right, a young, media-savvy generation of online white supremacists, and forces in the right-wing media feeding hostility. Throw in the historical strains of xenophobia, racism, misogyny and resentment, and you've got yourself a cultural phenomenon. This is Ideas at the House, and I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. In today's episode, David Nywert, author of Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, examines the growth of extremist groups, their influence on Trump politics, and how we can work for positive change in a world that trades on sensationalism. He was with the New York Times Australian Bureau Chief, Damien Cave. We're here today to talk about this book, Alt America, with David Nywert. Rather than give you an introduction and explanation uh, of his background and how he came to this, I'm just going to quickly move to him, and he's going to speak for a bit about the ideas in his book and how it came together. Um, then I'll ask him a bunch of questions, and then we'll ask you, if you have questions, to step to the microphones and join us in the conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to turn this over to David, who will teach us all a bit about Alt America. David? <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for coming out. Um, I should say how privileged and honored I feel to be here. Um, this is uh, probably my most significant venue ever, so if I get a little uh, tense, don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and I am just a kid from a small town in Idaho originally. I'm not a kid anymore, obviously. Uh, but uh, I, um, sort of the origins of all this is, goes back to that. Uh, I grew up in a very... A conservative part of a very conservative state, and uh, we, in the you know 60s and 70s, when I was a kid, uh, the um, John Birch Society was a major presence in uh, our, sort of our culture there, and um, it was sort of my origins, or sort of how I um, learned how to uh, approach this uh, conspiracism with a great deal of skepticism and uh, kind of develop the habits of learning how to uh, take those things apart. Um, but I was, you know, I was a Republican in a Republican state and went to college and at University of Idaho and uh, graduated, well, actually before I graduated, I got my first newspaper job. And uh, it was becoming a, a, in the process of being a newspaper reporter that, you know, I kind of honed those uh, fact-finding skills that I think are the basis of being able to uh, look at conspiracy theories with a, a skeptical eye. And uh, my first job was in the panhandle of Idaho, about 20 miles north of a place called Hayden Lake. Um, which is, happens to be at the time where an outfit called the Aryan Nations had just set up shop, having moved up from Southern California. Um, I was the editor of that paper at the age of 21, and uh, pretty inexperienced. And uh, we were kind of baffled about what we should do, uh, how we should handle this phenomenon. Uh, with these racists and overt neo-Nazis. And uh, we decided, well, you know what we'll do is just not cover them. 
because we thought it would make, you know, they just want publicity uh, and we're just not going to give it to them. Um, we realized that was a pretty bad mistake within, you know, a couple of years, although by then I had moved on to other papers. Uh, but certainly I learned my lesson that way because uh, within a matter of about a year or so, we were awash in hate crimes of various kinds, particularly attacks on Jews and other minorities in the region. Not that we had very many. A lot of the reason the Aryan nations moved there was that this was a heavily white population. Um, and uh, it was in the process, you know, of doing, you know, it all culminated in 1984 with the criminal rampage of a, an outfit that uh, originated out of the Aryan nations called the Order. Uh, some of you may have heard of them. Uh, they robbed something like uh, 26, 27 banks and armored cars. And uh, in addition, committed very notorious assassination of a radio talk show host in Denver uh, named Alan Berg. It all culminated in December of 84 with uh, the FBI basically capturing all the members of the order. And uh, except for the leader who was cornered in a house on Whidbey Island, <clears throat> refused to come out. And they lobbed flares into the house and it burned down around him. So um, that was, at the time, it was pretty notorious. Uh, but one of the things that happened is when all these men went off to prison, uh, several of them basically became martyrs for the movement, key figures for the neo-Nazi movement. Uh, one of them, particularly a guy named David Lane, uh, wrote prolifically from prison. Uh, a lot of, and a lot of his words are still with us today, um, including he wrote, he wrote a sort of litany uh, motto for the racist right called the 14 words, which is essentially about creating a white homeland for white people. Um, and you'll still hear that uh, litany being used to this day. Um, I moved on. Uh, you know, I was an environmental reporter. And in the 1990s, I was uh, working in Western Washington, and we started seeing uh, a lot of uh, militias organizing. The Patriot Militia Movement was just getting its start then. And uh, I started writing about them as a freelancer, mostly as an environmental backlash story. Um, at the same time, I was also starting to write a great deal about uh, killer whales in the Northwest. And, some of you may know that I have also written a book about them. <laughs> a lot of people ask me, well, what's the connection there? Well, that's the connection. I was originally an environmental reporter. Um, but we, you know, it was uh, by 1995 when the Oklahoma City bombing happened at the hands of a patriot militiaman named Timothy McVeigh. Um, I was. It turned out I was one of the only reporters who had actually gone out and talked to these guys in the field. So um, I wound up being a militia expert. <laughs> and I'd had a sort of running um, relationship dating back to those days in the late 70s uh, with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is the primary 
organization in the United States that monitors uh, the activities of right-wing extremists. Uh, they started out in the 70s being primarily an anti-Klan group, but uh, as we all saw you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, that movement mutated, and the militia movement was very much kind of part of this new uh, trend to basically what the militia movement was, was in many regards an attempt by the radical right to mainstream itself, to sort of whitewash out the racist and anti-Semitic elements and present themselves wrapped in a very patriotic flag. Um, but it was very clear also that w they operated with the same sort of, um, using the same fuel as these, these old racist movements, especially the conspiracy theories that were the metier of their belief system. And uh, this, these conspiracy theories, as I noted, I put together, I wrote my first book in 99. It was a study of the militia movement in the Northwest. And uh, it was very clear, I, spent, I devoted a chapter then to what I called their alternative universe, which is basically this epistemological bubble that the radical right creates for itself comprised of conspiracy theories, uh, alternative facts, which we've become very familiar with recently, and, um, you know, outright falsehoods. But it's, it, and it, you know, it's still a sort of whole universe in which true believers can dwell. Indeed, it grows virtually every day because what conspiracists do is they take each day's news events and translate them through the prism of their conspiracist belief system. And it has continued growing over the years. One of the major uh, players, or actually he was a significant player in the 90s, was this radio host out of Texas named Alex Jones. And he basically was picking up uh, conspiracy theories that were generated by uh, the militia of Montana and he was transmitting them to his radio audience. Uh, this conspiracist world kept growing uh, through the early part of uh, the 2000s, uh, thanks mainly to the events of 9-11 in 2001. Um, there soon sprung up a whole uh, cottage industry around what we called the 9-11 truther movement, the idea that uh, 9-11 was actually a, a, a secret conspiracy uh, conducted by members of the government or Israeli intelligence or whatever it was, whoever was telling the theory would have their own uh, sort of whoever, you know, they, they would claim that this per these were the people involved. And, uh, of course, this meant that the, these folks on the very far right were still very distant from mainstream Republicans who, of course, supported George W. Bush, and George W. Bush was, you know, the evil New World Order figure in these 9-11 uh, truth theories. Uh, that distance, that gap, very much vanished with the election of Barack Obama. And Obama was, uh, um, 
you know, basically became the subject of a lot of conspiracy theories, but, um, you know, most famously the uh, birther conspiracy theories and uh, the, the claims that he was an illegitimate uh, citizen who was actually born in what, Kenya or Indonesia or wherever they wanted. Uh, and those theories basically became the, created this, uh, basically the gap disappeared. Uh, and this was especially true through the phenomenon of what we call the Tea Party, or what called itself the Tea Party. Uh, certainly I saw in going to Tea Party gatherings uh, really early in its formation, uh, the reality that it had become this major conduit for revival of all these ideas and, and themes and agendas that had their origins in the Patriot Militia Movement of the 90s. And that continued to grow all during those eight years of Obama's presidency, and indeed it became increasingly radicalized and racialized. And the conspiracy theories became increasingly crazy. Uh, by late 2015, or actually uh, early 2015, I'm sorry, we started seeing signs that not only was this conspiracy world uh, really gaining momentum, and particularly the sort of militia patriot organizing that came with it was gaining momentum, but we were also seeing this new phenomenon called the alt-right, which actually organized directly online. And we, what we were also seeing was uh, the, the sort of hate groups that the SPLC monitored um, really not actually growing because what was happening was all of the people, the young people who were being recruited into these radical belief systems were doing so without actually joining any organizations. And the apotheosis of this in many ways was uh, a young man named Dylan Roof who walked into a Charleston church uh, the day after Donald Trump announced his candidacy and killed nine people because he believed uh, a lot of these, f these false claims about um, how blacks were basically murdering white people at an obscene rate. Uh, these claims had been with us for a very long time, uh, generated by white nationalists back in the early 2000s. And we saw them continue to grow, and, and obviously a young man like Roof uh, was still absorbing them in 2015. As it happened, of course, Donald Trump uh, did announce his, like I said, his candidate had announced his candidacy the day before, and did so by making a, a really overtly racist appeals, uh, calling Mexicans rapists and that sort of thing. Um, and I was tracking very closely what the response was among uh, the radical right. And they were initially very intrigued by Trump, mainly because of his, uh, of course, the birth of conspiracism that he had promoted since 2011, but also uh, by his attacks on immigrants and Mexicans. And they really fell into line uh, behind him 
pretty unanimously about a month and a half after the announcement when he released his uh, immigration plan that was essentially uh, a copy of white nationalist agenda for immigration that we'd seen for many years. So um, it was obviously you know, a matter of concern to us. And then we kept seeing Trump do all these little, uh, make all these sort of nod and wink gestures in the direction of the radical right. Uh, he tweeted out a meme of himself as Pepe, uh, who is the mascot of the alt-right. Uh, he retweeted a uh, white genocide theme. White genocide is one of the claims and themes of the radical right, and particularly uh, the far alt-right. And um, he tweeted out those fake crime statistics that R Dylan Roof had obviously bought into, the very same uh, statistics. So it was obvious uh, that we were seeing this sort of symbiotic relationship between the radical right and Donald Trump's candidacy. And it was at that point that uh, I began working on the projects that became this book. Um, had a little bit of a hard time selling it because was, we were uh, pitching it to publishers in uh, May and June of 2016. And publishers always look a year out and, uh, for these things. And uh, they all said, oh, this story will be dead next year. <laughs> and um, so, and honestly, I felt the same thing. We, we argued consistently that, look, even if Donald Trump disappears tomorrow, the real phenomenon, what this book is about, is not about the, um, uh, what Donald Trump does. It's, going to be, it's about this army of authoritarian believers who he is raising uh, through his behavior, and who are always going to be with us anyway, uh, but is actually increasing the numbers, and um, and he's getting them organized and energized, and that's going to be a systemic issue we're going to deal with for a generation, and that essentially is the theme of the book. So, uh, with little further ado. Uh, I think I'll join <laughs> Damien in conversation here. Thank you. Nice. Hello, sir. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted to start a little bit with the two main forces in your book that seem to have propelled the radical right into the mainstream. One is Donald Trump. And the second one is really technology and the way that the internet and social media works. Which of these two do you think has been more significant for this movement that's sort of behind or undergirding Donald Trump? Well, in, in a lot of ways, uh, it actually is the latter. Uh, the, internet, the internet has a very uh, peculiar effect. One of them is that we feel as though we are um, actually having in human interaction on, on the internet what we're actually interacting with is bits of information on a screen. So it's just a simulacrum of actual human interaction. You don't have the hand gestures or the face or the presence of a body there next to you. So what actually happens on the internet is that dehumanization happens very, very easily. 
And dehumanization is really kind of the core of the radical right. It's this, the essence of the radical right. Uh, the dehumanization and, and uh, demonization of others is essential to, it's, that's its essential program. And, um, you know, where we really started seeing this, where you see this most pronouncedly is in what we call trolling culture, uh, which is one of the dominant uh, roles of the alt-right. It's one of the things that they really generated a lot of their original um, energy from, was these trolls in places like uh, these message boards like 4chan and 8chan, and that sort of thing. Well, explain what you mean a little bit by trolling. I mean, in terms of, like, what are they, uh, you know, for those of us who have been trolled by some of these guys yeah. earlier, um, but explain sort of what that means and why that's toxic. Yeah, well, and trolls are basically, they, the, trolls are the people, you know, as their name suggests, that, who hide under the bridges of our discourse, and... and uh, <laughs> Sometimes they don't hide, but... Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> but not. they lay in wait yeah. and uh, spring on you and uh, say ugly and nasty things and basically derail whatever discourse you're having. Uh, it's all about uh, being as transgressive and ugly and vicious as you pos can possibly get away with. And it, it, this is part of why it appeals to young white males because it is that transgressive mm -hmm. sort of humor. They often use humor and these kinds of things in their, their appeals. Uh, it's, you know, it's that thing that teenage boys, uh, let's be as, as, as racist as we want to be kind right. of thing, right? <laughs> right, and that desire for freedom by telling other people, you know, yeah. putting them down. Yeah. I mean, Australians to some degree, whether they recognize it or not, saw the way this works recently, actually, where long before Donald Trump was talking about white South African farmers um, and the need to save them, Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister here, was spreading that uh, yes. around here. And it made me think, well, how does this work? I mean, it's, it seems to me that there's basically a community online that is increasingly internationalized that is sharing and spreading these ideas. Is that, is that sort of what's going on? Is that what we're seeing? Yes. I mean, certainly that's one of the effects of the Internet. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that the, that the militia movement of the 90s was able to organize was that it was actually originally online. In many regards, they were trading information. And of course, it was very crude in those days. Uh, there's email forwards and that sort of thing. Uh, but this allowed people from very disparate places um, to be able to connect in ways that they never could before. And this includes now, you know, this very global effect. So you're having people interacting with people in Europe and down under and um, everywhere else, uh, connecting in ways that can be incredibly toxic. Is it, I mean, one of the things I think with the internet that makes it hard to gauge is, well, how big is this movement? There's, yeah. you know, you can make 100 Twitter accounts and look a lot bigger than you are. I mean, do you have any sense of that? Like, how, how much is, is this that the, the group that's there is smaller but louder and more empowered, or is that the group that sort of belongs to the radical right is really growing? Well, I, I think that, you know, we, we do have to do kind of a finger in the air kind of thing because, as I mentioned, um, you know, we're no longer seeing people actually joining hate groups in the way we did, uh, which used to be how we would track 
the size of these movements. You know, we would track the numbers of hate groups and then look at what their actual membership roles were. And that would give us a, a pretty good idea for how large they actually were. Uh, that's not happening anymore. So what we actually have to look at more than anything is traffic uh, levels, traffic numbers, uh, participation in these message boards and um, on, you know, on various, uh, on social media. And, you know, the numbers that we see at the Southern Poverty Law Center are roughly, you know, are in the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes perhaps even the millions. Um, Is that more than 10 or 20 years ago? I mean, the internet was... Quite a bit more. Yeah, quite a bit more. I would say that, and particularly the participation in conspiracism has gone just through the roof. Uh, Alex Jones's traffic numbers are huge, millions of viewers every week. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the conspiracism is much of what fuels these radical right movements. So, um, yeah, it, you know, and kind of in the 90s, Jones was, you know, attracting hundreds of right. viewers, right? So, a uh, very significant difference. Do, do you ever worry that by, and this is sort of to your point about when you were first a young reporter about how to cover these things, do you ever worry that by focusing on them we're exaggerating their power or in some mm -hmm. way sort of giving them more power? Sure. I mean, it's something that I think journalists have, actually have to be careful of. Uh, it's very easy to do um, sort of clumsy, facile reporting that presents them in, as normal people because the truth is, actually, the New York Times rather uh, notoriously uh, ran a piece uh, that it was accused of normalizing white nationalists right. in the process of doing a profile of a young man. And, it, you know, this was something I had learned in the early 80s was that, yeah, they, they do seem normal. They seem like normal people. It's not until you start digging under the surface and really start kind of pushing them on their beliefs that you start understanding how radical are. they are because, hey, they go to the grocery store just like everybody else, right? Right, so. right, right. Yeah, I mean, as you sort of point out in the book, they're all around us whether you recognize it or not. I yeah. Mean, sort of the... the yeah, nature. yeah, they fit right into our society and especially American society be, partly because they do wrap themselves, especially in the patriot militia movement, mm -hmm. in very patriotic, very American rhetoric. And I mean, what about Trump? I mean, when, you know, like, you sort of tracked a little bit of his association with this. Do, do we think this was something that he you know, sought out himself? Were there relationships with others that fed him this? Like, how much do we know about how he became acquainted with all of this? Well, mostly what we do know is that he was an avid participant in the conspiracist culture, dating back to his promotion of um, the birther conspiracies and appearing on Alex Jones's show mm -hmm. and uh, frequently sort of banding a lot of these conspiracy theories around on his Twitter account. So, uh, we, you know, we know that he was kind of a participant in this mindset, but um, people ask me, well, do I think he's actually an ideologue? No, I, I actually don't. Um, in, not in the classic sense. He's certainly not a Richard Spencer type ideologue. Uh, Richard Spencer's one of the leaders of the alt-right and an overt white nationalist. And honestly, Trump's not that smart, as far as I can right, tell. Right, right. You know? and, and, yet, and yet, to the point of your book, there are consequences that go beyond him, right? Yeah. And so, you know, 
what happens if in 2020 he doesn't win? What happens with those people? Well, they'll, um, a lot of them are heavily armed. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's actually, yeah, I'm very concerned. Um, uh, and honestly, there's no guarantee that Trump himself will uh, concede uh, the election results. He already indicated in 2016 that he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know why we would think he would do it in 2020. Um, so yeah, it's a really a, a cause for concern that um, he clearly doesn't have any respect for the traditions of uh, the American electoral system, including the peaceful uh, handover of power. Mm -hmm. uh, he is himself very clearly an authoritarian personality, mm -hmm. and um, I actually expect him to try to hang on to power by any means possible. So uh, I would think whether he wins or loses, uh, that election is going to be very fraught and its results. Violent too, do you think? I mean, is that what we're looking Potentially, at? Potentially, yeah. I mean, they're talking now about civil war all the time. Mm -hmm. You'll notice that it's never anybody on the left that talks about civil war. It's always these guys on the right. And I spend a lot of time on their message boards and listen to their conversations. I go to these, uh, I've covered a lot of these alt-right events on the West Coast and I listen to their rhetoric. They're always talking about uh, how they can't wait for the day they can start shooting liberals. And right. What a joke. Right, yeah, and for many of them it's not. I mean, it's interesting because another thing that you point out in the book is the way you're very particular about the word fascist. The left sometimes mm -hmm. accuses Trump of being yeah. a fascist. Um, yeah. And, and yet you point out that the way fascism usually works is that it, there's also, there, there's, there has to be a sort of militant element attached for a fascist yes. to rise. And so yes. are we not at that point with Trump? I mean, is this, is this his like loose you know, militia or is it not there yet? Well, he hasn't actually made his connection to the militias explicit other than, uh, you know, these sort of oblique moves like pardoning um, the Hammond right. uh, folks. The Hammonds were major figures in the Malheur uh, National Wildlife Refuge standoff, armed standoff of 2016 that was conducted by members of the Bundy family and other various militiamen. So, um, yeah, he, he pardoned these major figures in that, and it was clearly a signal to that, um, mm -hmm. that element that, you know, he was sympathetic. He hasn't ever actually indicated uh, anything that, you know, he would call these people out to his side, uh, but he has recently said that there is going to be violence if they try to remove him from office mm -hmm. or if they try to impeach him. Or, or actually, no, he was talking about the 2018 election, right. that if they lose, that there will be violence. Um, so uh, those are very profound causes for concern on my part as well. It, I mean, it's also worth pointing out too that the many of his supporters who were armed, they don't necessarily just belong to militias. I mean, I cover, I've covered immigration for a long, long time in the U.S. and in Mexico, and you know, ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, the Border Patrol, feels more empowered now under Trump than they ever do. And yeah. I sometimes wonder within rogue government. agency, if you ask me. What's that? It's a rogue agency, if you ask me. And there's and there's been all kinds of evidence to show that they feel that this yeah. is, this is their moment. So yeah. I sometimes wonder if that moment is taken away by his loss, or if immigration in particular shifts direction with a new candidate, or no, you know, a Democrat that wins, or Congress. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I mean, how would you sort of explain Trump's connection to some of these forces within governments in America? 
Yeah, um, you know, he, they actually uh, have extreme loyalty to Trump. They see him, especially within uh, the ranks of ICE, mm -hmm. of ICE. Uh, those folks are very, very loyal to Trump. And I should add also one of the other things that uh, we're seeing very clearly, and this it goes from the police in Charlottesville to all the police forces we've been dealing with on the West Coast who are supposed to be policing these alt-right events. Yeah. It's really manifestly clear that those police are acting on the side of the radical right people that are there actually bringing violence to these urban liberal cities uh, from outside and the police forces that are supposed to actually be protecting their citizens are actually taking the side of these invaders. Right, which is a disconcerting element too. Yeah, yeah, works. very disconcerting. And if you know police culture in the States, um, it doesn't surprise you because a lot of these guys watch Fox News. Right, right, right. Yes, fair and balanced. Um, <laughs> I mean, what do you think, though? I mean, whether, I mean, the other thing that's interesting to point out about the support within government is that these are not, you know, down on their luck, poor white working class people, people I grew up with. These are guys who, like, you know, they're educated, they have good jobs, and yet they're still Trump supporters, and they yeah. still feel aggrieved. So what is that? What's the source of that, you know, white male aggrievement? Our folks are not doing such a good job in the U.S. People who look like me and you are, uh, are not necessarily helping things. Yeah, um, well, it is, um, you know, it's actually true. The, you know, the average alt-righter is not, uh, the, the, the Patriot Militia Movement's very rural, uh, and that's, it's actually kind of in many ways, that's what's frightening about it, is that it's become in many ways the sort of default worldview of people in rural America. Um, but the alt-right is a very different phenomenon. It's, it is, like I said, mostly organized online, uh, and its primary participants are suburban young white males, usually from very privileged backgrounds, uh, but they are, frankly, a lot of spoiled kids. You know, the, mm -hmm. if you think of that whole, the incel right. segment of the alt-right, these are the, they call themselves involuntary celibates. Uh, the man who mowed over all those people in Toronto was an incel. Uh, and they really hate women. And so it's part of this really profoundly misogynist element within the alt-right. And, um, you know, those guys are all pretty well-to-do. Right. Um, so where is this coming from? It's authoritarianism. It's the desire to have power over others. Yeah, well, it's the desire to maintain the dominance of their, uh, of their current Right. social status, and a lot of this is ginned up by fear of the realization that demographically speaking, uh, white people are decreasing in numbers in the United States mm -hmm. uh, relative to others, and the, you know, the realization that by 2050 or so, um, less than 50% of, or uh, you know, less than 50% of America will be white, and uh, that creates this very irrational, sort of very pervasive fear among people who, frankly, are enjoying their positions of privilege. Right. Um, we have a few, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions, and then um, we'll start to take questions from you guys. There are microphones on the left and the right, so if anyone who has a question wants to move down toward there now, um, so we don't have to wait, that would be great. Um, 
I'm going to switch gears a little bit and ask about what can be done about this sort of thing. Um, when I was a young correspondent in, in Florida, I covered a guy named Derek Black, who yeah. was a white supremacist yeah. who ran for office in Palm Beach. And I remember seeing him in his black trench coat, and he yeah. looked awkward and weird, and he did not Funny look hat. so threatening with yeah. his ridiculous hat. Um, but then he was the son of a very important white supremacist. He was you know, yeah. really a powerful figure in this movement. And then at some point, he was converted to leave, basically. And how, do you, how, how can we as a society find ways to push people out of this culture? It's really difficult. And it's not just, of course, racism. It's actually conspiracist culture in general. Uh, that once people go down these rabbit holes, it's very hard to pull them out. And yeah, Derek, you know, Derek is a very interesting case because he grew up in this movement. He wasn't converted. But he also, a lot of it had to do with what he began experiencing in real life wasn't jibing with what he had been taught was the reality. And so that was a lot of why he pulled out. Um, it's actually harder, I think, to get uh, people who are converted mm -hmm. into the movement to acknowledge they've made a mistake and to pull back out. The only things that I've actually seen be really successful are, you know, personal relationships mm -hmm. uh, with people that they care about, either family members or good friends who have the patience and the empathy and, frankly, personal fortitude, because it requires that, to be patient enough to gradually pull them out, uh, try to get them to think rationally, because this is profoundly irrational stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how, how, how do we do that? You know, there, I don't think there's actually any kind of mass mechanism available for converting people or to, to convince them that this is crazy. Uh, I think it actually has to occur on a, a personal level. And how do we do that? Um, I don't know, but uh, that's uh, sort of like Ron Farrow. That's my next book. Yeah. <laughs> I just haven't finished doing the research on it yet, so I don't have good answers for you. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, all right, so we'll move to the audience and have some questions. Maybe we'll start here, and, uh, and then we'll go over here. Hi. Um, you were talking about making the mistake uh, when you were a young editor of sort of trying to silence and ignore these racists and conspiracists and how uh, subsequently they kind of grew and there were more attacks. Um, and obviously there's a debate going on right now in the US around you know, safe spaces and uh, people like Richard Spencer and stuff like that being able to come and speak at universities and kind of potentially promulgate their views but also, um, and garner new followers, but also uh, potentially in the process, you know, being able to be challenged by more people and more people becoming mm -hmm. aware of the fact that there are these people out there and they need to be challenged. So where do you kind of uh, sit on, you know, how we strike the balance uh, around that whole issue of, you know, giving people a platform versus trying to, to silence them? Where do you stand on that today? You know, I, I actually don't believe in silencing people either. Um, I very much believe in robust exchange of ideas. Um, however, uh, when these ideas are directly geared towards threatening and intimidating other people. Uh, you're actually engaging in the antithesis of the pursuit of free speech. And that's what Richard Spencer actually rather cynically manipulates. He, he recently admitted that, you know, they don't actually care about free speech, but they need to use the issue to gain these platforms for themselves so that they can continue to spread their ideology. Um, 
So, and I have been covering a lot of these events on the West Coast that are supposed to be free speech events. And it is, again, a cynical manipulation of the concept uh, because they obviously really can care about their own free speech, but they object to the fact that other people are coming out to use their free speech rights to protest them. They, they, they say, you're, well, you're trying to silence me just by using your free speech rights. That's not how free, free speech always involves that give and take. So a lot of, uh, you know, basically their view of free speech is that it's uh, free speech for me, but not for thee sort of thing. It's uh, free speech without consequences. It's the idea that you can say any hateful old thing that you want and not have to face the consequences of people's very justifiable anger for the ugly things that you've said. And um, that's, again, not how free speech actually works. You, uh, in reality, the, the First Amendment is really specifically only about government censorship of that speech. And, um, you know, and that's separate, I think, from the rather uh, larger issue of, you know, how do we have maintain the principles of free speech in a society. But one of the things we need to understand is that in, within that larger context, uh, their claims of free speech and the, the things that people like Lauren Southern and Stephen Molyneux uh, would suggest are, are actually very cynical manipulations of those principles. Well, just to follow up on that, would you, would you, if you were a university administrator, would you say, no, we're not having Richard Spencer here if there was a campus group? Sure. Well, you know, universities don't have to give, I mean, they certainly don't invite me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, was kind of like when uh, Bill Maher was saying, you know, oh, well, we're, uh, oh, it's terrible that Alex Jones got deplatformed. And I go, well, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bill Maher denies my free speech by not inviting right. me on his show, right? If that's the if that's the, your principle, right? But that's not how it works. That's not how this stuff works. Uh, nobody is obligated to provide someone whose actual standards, especially academic standards, are don't you, you, they don't meet those standards? Right. You know, right. uh, Richard Spencer's form of intellectualism is so shoddy that no worthy academic would actually want to host it because it's crap. Right, right. Good point. Uh, next question over here. Uh, David, thank you. Yes. Um, I've got a, a question that draws on your observation of the far right and also uh, about your experience as an environmental journalist. Um, the perception that I have in Australia is that there is a strong overlap between the far right, the Christian right, and people who deny the science mm -hmm. of human-induced climate change. So for, and I think the same is true of America. Firstly, is that perception correct? Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and I often puzzle over why it is the case that uh, the, Christian far, uh, the Christian right, the, the religious right, is so strongly opposed to the science on human-induced climate change? Well, um, reli the religious right ultimately is religious authoritarianism, and it's, so it shouldn't surprise us that it meshes perfectly neatly with political authoritarianism. Um, and authoritarianism, you've got to understand, is not... 
we always think of authoritarianism in terms of the leaders, right? The Donald Trumps and the uh, Vladimir Putins. Um, but that's not actually the dynamic that uh, is at work in authoritarianism. Authoritarianism really is about uh, large numbers of people with what we call an authoritarian personalities. Uh, roughly, and studies have shown, you know, that roughly 20 to 30% of any population at any given time uh, has these authoritarian personalities. And they include religious authoritarianism, as, or authoritarians as well as, as others. And one of the, so let me quickly yeah, sort of run through how authoritarianism works. Uh, it's built around three behavioral and attitudinal clusters. Uh, the first is um, authoritarian submission. The belief that in order to have a safe and civil and secure society, uh, we all need to submit to the rule of the uh, mighty authoritarian leader, uh, a legitimate authoritarian leader. Um, the second is uh, authoritarian aggression, which is aggression directed towards anyone who fails to appropriately submit. And then the third is conventionalism, which is this idea that they represent the real uh, mainstream of whatever society they're part of. In, in our case, the real Americans, or down here, the real Australians. Isn't that what uh, Bob Catter was saying about uh, the uh, final solution speech? Um, same, it's all the same thing. And... Um, this, the, the, the interaction of those three clusters creates really a fairly long list of identifiable traits, uh, including uh, compartmentalized thinking, which is where you'll often get... That's, that's where you'll find people uh, able and willing to believe two completely contradictory things at the same time, so long, so long as they fit within the compartment uh, it also include, uh, inclines them to conspiracist thinking. It also uh, introduces a willingness to not only uh, overlook and put up with bigotry, but to actively engage in it. So, Thanks for that question. Yeah. Um, next question over here. Just wondering what your um, understanding and belief is with the upcoming um, midterm elections and whether the um, groups, the Democrats and all the other um, various social groups, are able to mobilise and make a difference, um, especially in the light of the Democrats that seem to be re-having um, re to do uh, what they stand for with um, young people coming through and standing for their um, party in different locations. Yeah, um, well, I'm, I happen to be very hopeful. You know, I always say that um, Trump opened the Pandora's box of uh, the American id and all the creepy crawlies came flying out. <laughs> but, um, but in the Pandora's myth, the, there was always one spirit remaining, and that was hope. Um, so I'm always very hopeful. Um, I never give up. Uh, and I'm actually very hopeful about this fall election. I feel that there is a huge amount of momentum. I think a lot of people um, took, have been taking democracy for granted in the United States and have taken those institutions for granted and have taken for granted the, you know, people, you know, 
people generally in the States tend to actually see politics as a kind of entertainment and that doesn't actually affect their real lives. And so this is why they don't bother going out and voting. Fortunately, in Australia, you do have compulsory right. voting, so we don't have quite that problem here. But, uh, but in the States, it is very much, has been a real problem. I, my own gut sense of things is that uh, that's that Trump has actually wakened people from that slumber yeah. in ways we haven't seen before. So I'm very, very hopeful that this fall we'll see a, a real shift. And I'm also very um, encouraged by the appearance of a lot of young, very progressive people who are kind of giving a fresh energy to... Uh, democratic ideas and ideals. Um, you know, I know that Alexandria Ocasio-Castro, the woman from New York who uh, won the recent primary, has come under a lot of criticism from mainstream Democrats for not always speaking precisely. But I find her personally quite refreshing, a very refreshing, uh, energetic personality. There's a young man in Texas running against Ted Cruz for the Senate yeah, who named Beto O'Rourke who offers that same kind of energy. So, yeah, I'm very hopeful with the younger generation. And I also, you know, see, you know, I know that people like Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts, is really gaining a lot of strength within the broader Democratic Party as well. So... Uh, I'm hopeful. And just to, just to add a perspective um, from Washington, Maureen Dowd, our columnist, is here. She's talking at one, actually. And I was having a conversation with her about this. And she said, you know, it's true that Donald Trump has completely revived you know, women in politics. It's been great for journalism. There are a whole bunch of positive signs uh, mm -hmm. about people sort of making, yeah. using this moment to take advantage of this moment. But what she also said was that the Democrats have a tendency to just expect people to vote for them. As opposed to yeah. wooing them, and that yeah. you know, there yeah. you know, there's a sense of, sort of entitlement. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, this idea that you know, even her slogan, "It's her turn," was this. It wasn't that I'm going to persuade you. And so these were some of the issues the Democrats have not fully dealt with. And so right. there's reason for skepticism as much as there is. For sure. Hope. Well. Uh, as you know, um, as uh, corrupt as Republicans may be, uh, they've uh, often been more than a match for Democratic incompetence. Right. So, yes, a, po a pox on both their houses. Uh, next, um, yes. thank you. Um, considering uh, the changes over the last 30 years, kind of between Australian and American relations, we've seen this growing trend in authoritarianism within both our countries' governments. I think, particularly post 9 11, and the kind of link between the two nations has become quite explicit. So given that, and given the way that also media tends to react towards these authoritarian changes with a generally negative and somewhat shocked perspective, since you're both journalists, I was wondering if you could comment on why that is the case when considering both countries' trajectories. Here we have a deeply racist policy history and the same in the US. Yeah. But these right-wing contingents and these returns to this kind of um, ancestral racism gets... Uh, sort of uh, shock and horror when it's kind of a go figure that we would end up back here when there's not been enough substantive change. Why is this taking journalists by surprise that the alt-right are cropping up when it seems to be something that you've both kind of elucidated on being <laughs> an, an, like an inevitable, almost a yeah. go figure kind of thing that this would crop up out of our cultures? Good question. Do you want to take this one? Or <laughs> well, I'm sure you have some uh, perspective on it, yeah. but, but I will say... 
Uh, you know, uh, it certainly doesn't surprise me. I've been warning about this stuff for a very long time, but it has always been one of my frustrations with my fellow journalists that um, they don't pay attention to it. I think a lot of it is, frankly, that some of it's just that human impulse to deny that we have the Nazi in the closet. You know, we don't want to think about it. It's, it's an ugly thing. And so a lot of journalists, I think, actually turn away from it and do, or, or in more or less active denial. I've been called an alarmist for years until the last two or three. <laughs> Telling. Uh, and um, so, yeah, um, those kinds of things are... And it's, you know, we, we don't want to think about it. We, we really... It's all, we want to maintain our sense of normalcy and this stuff very much violates that sense of normalcy and so people really actively engage in denial about it until it actually comes upon us in the form of Charlottesville. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ted, my perspective too is that, um, you know, I, I would like to believe that the Times has been less shocked. Um, I've <laughs> done this for a while myself. Um, but I do think there are segments of the media that frankly, are a little out of touch and are not necessarily having conversations um, with some of the people who are both expressing these views and who are victims of these views in a lot of ways. And the political culture and political journalism in general in a lot of different countries is really an access game. And a lot of those people are really not as in touch with things as they could or should be, I would argue. This is as a correspondent who covers politics only when I have to um, from the Capitol. But, uh, but I think journalism has had a wake-up call. I think that Trump has really had, in addition to sort of reviving you know, the reason for many of us for what we do, what we do in the public's eyes. I think it's also showed us the flaws and the blind spots that we have as our culture becomes so obsessed with how do we, how do we you know, make a financial play of journalism and how do we make sure that we're, you know, changing as much as we need to digitally. And I think, I hope, that we're in a moment of re-energizing what we do and figuring out a way to reconnect with people all across every spectrum, um, including the radical right. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much Thank for, you coming. for coming. Thank out. you, David. This has really Thank been you. wonderful. And um, Thank you. You've been listening to David Nywood talking to Damien Cave at Antidote 2018. And if you like this talk, hop on our YouTube channel to watch David in a panel called Fringe Dwellers and Fanatics, which was an excellent discussion about the global rise of extremism on both the left and the right. We've put the link in our show notes. And after all that discussion of Trump's popularity, it's probably time to take him down a peg or two. On the podcast next week is just the woman for the job, Maureen Dowd, the legendary New York Times columnist. We'll catch you then. <laughs>